One, two, there we go. I flipped it the wrong way. Hey, my name is Joseph. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, um, I serve on staff here at Providence. I do a number of different things. As Brendan said, today we are continuing in our sermon series called Love God, Love People, where we are looking at what we're calling the heart of discipleship, which is um, our call to be formed by the Holy Spirit to grow in our love for God and others. And we've been exploring in particular how the Holy Spirit forms and fuels our love for God and others in the context of a gospel-centered community. And so we started that, uh, that aspect of our emphasis last week, and we're going to continue that this morning. And so as I say every week, whether you would consider yourself a Christian, uh, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, our prayer for you every week is that you would taste and see the glory and goodness of God as we teach the Scripture. So would you guys please pray with me to that end. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, and as always, Lord, we humble ourselves in your sight. God, we humble ourselves knowing that you are a great, good, and glorious God, and that we find ourselves in desperate need of your grace this morning. And so we come before you and we plead our cause and our case before you that you would strengthen us by your grace this morning, by the power of the Spirit, to both see and understand and comprehend all that you have declared to us in your word, God, that we might be able to hear the word that you have for us this morning with clarity. Father, that you might convict us through your word and you might comfort us through your word. And ultimately, God, you might glorify your son, Christ Jesus and edify your people, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. All right, so last week we looked at the role of community in our spiritual formation that we both belong to and are being built into a people for God's possession and purpose, and we also said that we all have a tendency to either neglect community or outright reject Christian community or our collective identity in Christ. However, God has always desired a community of people to demonstrate and declare his love to the world, okay? He's not sent us out into the world as isolated individuals. He has saved us, formed us into a community, and in the context of that community is the way in which we demonstrate and declare God's love to others. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples in the prayer uh, that's famously known as the high priestly prayer found in John chapter 17, that he says, by your love for one another the world will know that you are my disciples. Amen? That the way in which we love one another, the way in which we care for one another, the way in which we esteem one another is actually meant to commend Christ to one another or to commend Christ to the world. And so last week when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, we saw very clearly that from the Old Testament to the New, there's this language that we are God's people for his possession. And the purpose is to declare the wonders of the gospel to the world around us and to make the glory of God known to others. However, we don't always desire to be a part of that kind of community for our own sinful reasons. But nonetheless, it stands to be true that we grow the most as God's people and we commend God the most in the context of gospel-centered relationships. And so today we're going to begin talking about some specific practices and priorities that we believe here at Providence are meant to characterize and... uh, that are meant to characterize and be cultivated in the context of these gospel-centered communities. And so uh, recently, as a church, we realized that we were putting a very heavy emphasis on home groups. For a long time in Providence, uh, it was said uh, and kind of spoken and refrained that home groups are the heart of Providence, that home groups are where 
we make mature and mobilized disciples. They are kind of, you know, we've, we've said statedly from the stage that this isn't it, that if you really want to get into the life of Providence, you need to join a home group. And while that is still true, uh, whenever I came on staff a little over a year ago or right out a year ago, I realized that as much emphasis as we were putting on home groups, hardly anyone could define or describe what a home group was. Uh, at least not in a uniform way. So you would ask this person, hey, what's a home group? And they would say, to me, a home group is like, right? And then you would ask this person, hey, what's home group? And to me, home group is like, and depending upon who you were talking to and which home group they were a part of, that definition or that description might be wildly different than the other person. And so, and sometimes it's like, you would hear from people in this home group and they would all kind of have a similar answer. And then sometimes people in this home group would have a similar answer, but they were completely different than one another. And then sometimes you could ask people in the very same home group, what is home group like to you? And then they would have radically different answers. And so one of the things that I have been trying to do over the past six, seven months with home group leaders, and I'll continue to do so in the future, is give a little bit more clarity um, and give a little bit more definition to what home groups are and what home groups do. And so to that end, I want to give you the definition we've been working from and explain how today's sermon and the next few sermons are going to play into that definition and, and teasing these out for us. Because I think if we're going to talk about loving God and loving people as a church, we have to understand that whenever we say we're going to do that in the context of home groups, we need to know how home groups actually help us do that. And so the definition we've been working from for the past six months behind the scenes with home group leaders is that home groups are meant to be missional communities, I'll explain these terms in just a moment, missional communities of disciples that are devoted to the gospel of Jesus, the growth of one another, and the good of their neighbors in the context of everyday life. So home groups are meant to be missional communities, which means that these communities that we belong to, these home groups, are not meant to be solely for ourselves, that these home groups are meant to have an outward face to them, that we are to be looking outwardly just as much as we're seeking to care for one another and love one another and speak the gospel to one another, we also are meant to be communities that have an outward face, that we're always hospitable and willing to invite people in, people specifically that don't know Jesus. We want them to find avenues and pathways to get to know Jesus through our home groups. Okay, so when we say missional communities, uh, that, is, that is in contrast to what I would consider a monastic community. And a monastic community is one that's essentially closed off from the world, where we get the term monk, mon monastery, monastery. So these are to be communities that are on mission, right? But they are devoted to, they're communities of disciples that are devoted to the gospel of Jesus. So we want these communities to be centered on the gospel. We want them to be focused on the growth of one another. And we also want them to be focused on the good of our neighbors in the context of everyday life. And so may, I've made this point over and over and over again. Historically, what we have treated home groups as is just a weekly meeting. All right, and again, depending upon the home group, the home group leader, the nature of the structure of the group, that weekly meeting might look more like a Bible study. That weekly meeting might look more like a prayer meeting or a, like, a, like a miniature worship gathering, you know, kind of like a house fires type situation where everyone's barefoot with an acoustic guitar. You know, um, it might look like one of those, uh, or it might look like kind of more of a, an encouragement support group where you just kind of come down and you share your struggles, you know, how the kids have been getting on your nerves or whatever, or, you know, how, how you, you've been struggling with your boss or whatever. And then your other brothers and sisters kind of listen to that, maybe encourage you or pray for you. So to depend upon the home group, it might have taken on like more of an exhortational form, more of a Bible study form, more of a devotional form. But nonetheless, 
us, we're trying to say that in home groups, we actually need to be trying to do a few things. Number one, we need to be trying to grow in our love and understanding of Jesus. The gospel needs to be central. Number two, we need to be focused on the growth and care of one another. So that is going to take on different forms. We'll talk about in a minute. But we also need to make sure that we're doing this in a way that doesn't completely alienate or isolate ourselves from the world around us, from our neighbors, from our coworkers, from our friends, from our family members that don't know Jesus, right? Now, if you say that's a lot to try and do in a community, welcome to what the Bible calls the church, right? The Bible never gives us permission to do one of these things to the exclusion of the other. Now, our tendency as Christians is to try and program, a, like to, to try and program this into our lives, right? We try and say, okay, well, this is the time in which we're going to be uh, on out, like on mission, right? Uh, this is the time when we're going to be focused on like care for one another. This is the time when we're going to be focused on prayer. This is the time when we're going to be focused on Bible study. This is the time that we're going to be focused on, you know, uh, whatever it is. Like, so we like to try and compartmentalize things so that way we know what we're to be doing. But the Bible doesn't really describe Christian community in that way. The Bible describes Christian community as this group of people that are doing all of these practices together, but we're doing them in such a way that we are constantly exposed to non-Christians and inviting non-Christians into what we're doing. Now, we never compromise on what we're doing. We don't compromise on our commitments to prayer and truth and all of these things, but we also don't do them in a way that would completely alienate us or separate us from the world. And so if it sounds like we're trying to do too much, it's likely because we're only treating home groups like they're weekly meetings. And if you treat a home group like a weekly meeting and you try and do all that the Bible commands you to do in one weekly meeting, you're going to find yourself frustrated. But if you treat a home group not like a weekly meeting, all right, I'm preaching to you guys and you're being quiet right now. If you treat a home group only like a weekly meeting, then you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to be frustrated. But if you learn to treat the home group not like a weekly meeting, but like a network of relationships to belong to, a family of people that you grow in Christ with, then you understand that home group doesn't begin and end from the hours of 6.30 to 8.30 on a Wednesday a couple of times a month, but you understand that home group is essentially a, a group of Christians inside this church that you say, I'm going to learn to do life with. I'm going to be spending time doing things with them that are kind of mundane and monotonous, but I'm going to be doing them with the intention to grow in my understanding of the gospel, to grow in my care and love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and to, to be a good neighbor in my community. So I'm not going to get too much into pragmatics because we'll do that here a little bit later, but I want to say that that definition, home groups are missional communities of disciples that are devoted to the gospel of Jesus, the growth of one another, the good of our neighbors in the, in the context of everyday life. We say that we are committed to demonstrating our devotion to these things, though, by regularly gathering to... And this is something that I sought to do in order to clarify what home groups I don't think we're doing. And so I gave our home group leaders kind of six plumb lines, if you will, for what home groups are, are meant to be doing. Six things to measure ourselves against. Six statements. And so I'm going to lay out those six statements, and I'm going to let you know we're going to talk about two this morning. We'll talk about two the following week, and then we'll talk about the remaining two in the last week. So number one, home groups need to be characterized by... Seeking God in prayer together. The home groups need to be communities that are devoted to prayer, right? Uh, that we would establish in our home groups a culture of prayer. Second, 
Home groups need to be devoted to speaking the truth in love to one another. Speaking biblical, gospel-centered truth in love to one another. And in so doing, we would hope that we would cultivate or create a culture of truth in the midst of our communities. Third, home groups would grow in our devotion to celebrate God's grace and goodness together. That we would develop a culture of celebration. Though so far we've got prayer, we've got truth, and we've got celebration. Next, home groups would share burdens and struggles with one another. And we would, in so doing, we would develop a culture of care. That we would care for one another well in our home groups. Fifth, that home groups would devote themselves to reaching out to our neighbors to constantly and consistently develop the practice of reaching out to our neighbors, right? We all live in neighborhoods or apartment complexes. We're all surrounded by people, okay? Unless you live in the far reaches of Huffman, Dayton, Porter, New Caney, um, you still live by people. They're just a little further down the road, okay? You've got to get in your four-wheeler or your golf cart to go see them, but nonetheless, uh, you've got, you know, or whatever your preferred means is, you know, your giant truck or whatever, you know, you've got to just go down the road, your Kubota tractor, okay? Uh, and I know this, okay, I, I can bag on Huffman because I was raised in Huffman, and actually one of my close friends named Austin used to get around the neighborhood. I had a dirt bike, he had a Kubota tractor that he rode around the neighborhood in. His dad would let him drive the Kubota around. So literally, we would go to the neighborhood pool, uh, we'd ride up on our skateboards, dirt bikes, whatever, and Austin would, would bring the Kubota and, and park the Kubota. <laughs> it's, it's not a, this is not a joke, okay? Um, <laughs> So if you live in Huffman, your neighbor's a little further, but nonetheless, you still have neighbors. But that we would develop the habit of reaching out to our neighbors together. And then lastly, that our home groups would be characterized by a culture of hospitality. That not only would we reach out, but we would invite in. So we have six things. Prayer, truth, celebration, care, outreach, and hospitality. Our hope is that over time, by observing these practices more and more together, our home groups and the people that belong to them are going to be able to grow in our love for God and others by observing these practices habitually. And I am emphasizing the word practices because if you go back to about five sermons ago, I said very uh, passionately and very emphatically, whenever Paul says that we need to train ourselves in godliness, that there are some practices that we need to devote ourselves to that are likened unto spiritual training. Do you guys remember that? How do we train ourselves in godliness? Well, it's by doing the same thing over and over and over again, by observing repetition. And here's the thing, here's the beauty of being a part of a home group that is devoted to these things. Then now woven into your life is this, this biblical concept of spiritual accountability that you're not just out left to yourself to try and figure out how to do these practices all on your own, but when you belong to a community that's devoted to these practices and the community is held accountable to these practices, then you yourselves by belonging to it are also going to be held accountable to these practices. And hopefully in doing them over and over and over again, your love for God will be shaped, formed, and fueled, and your love for people will also follow that. And so today, like I said, we're just going to be talking about two of these practices and about how observing these practices help us uh, how are, is a way by which we can be helped in our spiritual formation. And those two practices we're going to talk about today are prayer and truth. And so my first point is this. Number one, belonging to a community focused on prayer and truth is foundational in forming us into the image of Jesus. 
Belonging to a community focused on prayer and truth is foundational in forming us into the image of Jesus. If you go back to our text that Brendan read for us earlier in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, this is, a, this is a passage of scripture that should not be uncommon to you if you've been, a, been around Providence for a while. This is one of those passages that we will refer to regularly, preach from often, and it's primarily because this is what we would consider to be uh, after the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and the, the, the church was birthed, if you will, the new covenant community of Christians was birthed. This is what we would call the spiritual instinct of the Christians at that time. Uh, they're all filled with the Spirit. They're newly baptized. They're new Christians. And if you pay attention to what happened, 3,000 people were saved all in one day. And this was the instinct that the Holy Spirit gave them, that they actually didn't just scatter, right? Now, this is important. 3,000 people weren't saved, and then like, all right, high five, high five, high five, and then we all scatter and go 3,000 different ways. What the Bible describes in Acts 2, 42 through 47 for us is actually very important because rather than scattering, what they did is they gathered, all right? Now, this is, this is, this is going to check your impulse and your instinct as a Christian, all right? Oftentimes what has happened in contemporary evangelicalism in America in probably the last 50 to 60 years since the birth of the megachurch and the church growth movement and the high emphasis on baptisms and booties in seats, okay? I won't say the, the other word because there are kids in the room, okay? Um, bottoms in seats, all right? So there's, there's another term, and this is actually used in church language, I apologize, but baptisms and bottoms in seats and, uh, and, and, and attendance and all of that, ever since that has become an emphasis of the church, that we gauge success by that, Christians have had this instinct that has kind of been built into us, the church hasn't helped, and that is, once you're saved, once you're baptized, once you've attended the weekly meeting, then guess what you do? You scatter. But when you scatter, you go about your own individualistic life. But this was not the impulse or the instinct of the early church after the Spirit had filled them. Certainly they left from the place that they were, but they didn't just scatter out individualistically, they formed themselves into smaller communities. They formed themselves into what we might describe as home groups. They didn't call them that, they didn't define, but what we, what we might describe as home groups is how they began to form and organize themselves. Now, what they did is extremely important because ultimately, all of the six things that I just laid out to you, Prayer, truth, celebration, care, hospitality, outreach are all found in Acts chapter 42 through 47. All of them are found through in this passage of Scripture and certainly teased out in greater detail throughout the rest of the New Testament in the epistles. But if you go with me back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I want to emphasize a couple of things. Number one, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A couple of things to pay attention to here. Number one, the term devoted is not insignificant. It's not an insignificant word. This is actually a very significant word for what we've been talking about in the context of this sermon series because at the beginning, in the onslaught, remember we said that what we really struggle with as Christians is bringing our desires and having uh, bring our desires before the Lord, our actual desires, and the having them shaped and formed and fueled by the Holy Spirit, that we are devotional beings. We are worshiping creatures. And so uh, what we devote ourselves to matters. 
right? What you devote yourself to, the thing that you give yourself to the most matters. The thing that you give yourself to the most is going to have the most powerful and influential um, force, or it's going to be the most powerful and influential force in shaping your love, all right? You become more like that which you love. You become that which you devote yourself to, you become more devoted to that thing. And so by devoting ourselves to the things that the early church devoted themselves to, we have to see that there's some wisdom in this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the fellowship of believers, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they gave themselves to these practices. They gave themselves to these practices of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to the practices of being in fellowship and community with one another. They gave themselves to the practice of breaking bread and praying with one another. So when we talk about being communities that are devoted to truth or being communities that are devoted to prayer, we have to understand that we are simply just trying to pattern ourselves after that which the Bible has already given us as a pattern to follow. All right? So I say this all the time, and it doesn't make me any friends, but I'm willing to say it because I think this is one of those truths that we just need to hear no matter what. At Providence, we do our best to not call you to do anything that the Bible doesn't call you to do. All right? However, we will be unapologetic about calling you to do that which the Bible has called you to do. I tell our home group leaders all the time, listen, I know that people in your home groups are going to give you pushback whenever you call them to do these things. Here's what you get to tell them. The good news is we're not going to ask you to do anything more than what Jesus has already asked you to do. That's the good news. The bad news is Jesus has asked for every single aspect of your life. So there's nothing that's off limits. <laughs> there's nothing that's not on the table with Jesus. There's nothing that's, and here's the thing, there's nothing that's not within the realm or the scope of the local church that Jesus hasn't assigned for us to do, all right? There's not things that Jesus has assigned us to do by ourselves, and then there are things that Jesus has assigned us to do in the local church. No, even the things that we do by ourselves are meant to do under the headship, authority, and submission to a local church. And so whenever we say, we're not going to call you to do anything that the Bible hasn't already called you to do, you need to know that what we're essentially saying is, we're going to hold up the scriptures, and what the scriptures say to do, we're going to devote ourselves to those things. Now, we're going to do it imperfectly. Your home group leader isn't going to be perfect at it. I'm not going to be perfect at it. The elders aren't going to be perfect at it. But nonetheless, this is the standard that we are holding up over ourselves, not putting it under ourselves. We're holding it up over ourselves and saying, God, we want to come under submission to this. And so whenever we say there's a pattern that we need to observe in our home groups, again, it's simply a pattern that's already been laid out for us in the Bible. We're just trying to be obedient to it. We're just trying to say, God, what you have said in your word, we want our lives to look like this. We want our home groups to look like this. We want our home groups to be devoted to the practice of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I'm not saying that we, we equate the apostles' teaching with the pastor's teaching, okay? Um, that's not what we're saying here. When we're talking about the apostles' teaching, the apostles were actually in that time teaching, and they had an authority that we don't have. And that authority was to actually write scripture, okay? So when we talk about devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. You understand? 
They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching in real time. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching some 2,000 years later, and it's already written down for us. So we don't have to guess hypothetically, you know, what did, what did Peter want us to know? What did Paul want us to know? What did John want us to know? What did, uh, what did, what did uh, any of the other James want us to know? Like, no, 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 we've got that laid out for us here in the Bible, in the canonized scripture. So whenever it says that we want our home groups to be devoted to truth, essentially that's what we're saying. We want, our, we want our home groups to be devoted to the truth of God's word. We want our home groups to be devoted to the truth of the apostles' teaching. We want to come up underneath what God has said in his word, and we want to submit ourselves to it. But when we're talking about truth, I need us to understand that we're not merely talking about gathering together in, in, in weekly Bible studies and simply trying to discern, okay, what does the Bible say, and then what does it mean individually for me? All right? Because here's what I know about just making truth about Bible study. If you have 25 people in a Bible study, and you have one Bible study leader, how does that group dynamic tend to play out when you've got an hour to discuss it? Seven people talk, right? The other 17 people lay silent, right? And the seven people that talk, they could say anything, right? You could have a guy who's be like, well, to me, God is like a cat, you know? And it's like, if anything, God would not be like a cat, okay? Um, unless you're talking about a lion. Then that gets classified as a cat, okay, but not a house cat. But you might have someone say, like, mm, to me, God is like a cat. And then, you know, seven people, nine people in the group are just totally weirded out by that, but they're not going to say anything because they're so weirded out. The group leader's sitting there thinking about how can I correct this brother without shaming him in front of everyone, and then, but oftentimes, because we haven't been trained in confrontation in our groups, the group leader will just be like, Mm, anyway, so Sally, what do you think about this, right? So brother that just said God is like a cat, nobody even addresses him. He just gets to say it, right? And then the other person moves on and is like, well, to me, God is not so much like a cat. He's more like, you know, whatever. And then you go on and so, but this is what happens in groups. Or then someone says, like, you're talking about, let's say you're talking about Philippians 2. You're studying Philippians 2. Someone says, God to me is like a cat. The other person says, hey, you know what? We need to pray for my Aunt Edna. We, we, we weren't taking prayer requests yet, though, you know? And then all of a sudden, the group dynamic gets shifted, and now we've got to pray for Aunt Edna. And, and God bless her, but we've got to go pray for her now. And so this is what happens whenever groups are focused on Bible study. Out of the 25 people, you've got one group leader, seven of them talk. So that's, what is that, six people total? Uh, or eight people total? Sorry, I'm bad at math. So you got, like I said, I did it right the first time. 17 people don't talk. 17 people just lay silent. Then those 17 people are just kind of, mm, okay, let's pray, and then let's get our kids and go home. You're not necessarily any more formed coming into that group than you were leaving. You might be more informed about people's opinions, perspectives, ideas, concepts, notions, but you're no more formed. The way in which we become more formed by the truth is actually growing in our ability to know truth and speak truth to one another. Right, in a way that doesn't allow you to kind of come into a Bible study, sit there quietly with your Bible halfway open in your lap, and then quietly leave, having never been encountered or confronted or challenged. So when we talk about being these communities of truth, I need to make it abundantly clear. I have tried to move our home groups away from the Bible study dynamic, and I know some of you have been frustrated by that. 
But it's because I want us to stop being so dependent upon someone else with the Bible open in their lap telling us how we ought to understand the Bible. What I want us to grow in is our understanding of the Bible and our ability to speak the truth from the Bible to one another. Now, why do I want that? Is that a preference of Joe? Joe just loves that. That's just what, whenever Joe goes to bed at night, that's what he longs to see, is Bible studies diminish and, right? It's like my own personal, it's like my own personal high. I can't wait to end all of the world's Bible studies. No, 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 that's not what's happening here. If you go to Ephesians chapter four, and I encourage you to do it, Ephesians chapter four, again, another passage that we've read from pretty regularly, and I, it's, it's like one of my, my pastoral life verses, uh, or a chunk of life verses, if you will. As a pastor, this I find myself referring to regularly whenever it comes to teaching and, and encouraging God's people. It's because it's one of those passages that I think we just mm, nod at and then move right beyond. But it's actually very formational for our church if we, if we can grasp it. All right, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, so in other words, the gifted leaders of the church, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints, the church, for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, spiritual formation, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, rather, rather, everybody say rather, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is the case that Paul is making here? The case that Paul is making here is that we grow into spiritual maturity. We grow into the fullness of the image of Jesus, not whenever we center our lives on attending weekly Bible studies, but when we belong to a community in which everyone is equipped to speak the truth in love. That's when we grow. We grow whenever you know that you're going to go sit down and have coffee with a brother or sister in Christ and they're not going to just listen to your woes. They're going to encourage you from God's word. He knows that you're going to grow not whenever you just attend the weekly Bible study, check in, check out, drop your kids off in the, in the spare room, grab your kids from the spare room, then go about your individualistic life. He knows that you're going to grow whenever you belong to a community that's gonna be calling you, texting you, checking up on you, pursuing you, making sure that you don't go astray, making sure that you don't believe lies, making sure that you don't give yourself over to the deceitful schemes of the enemy or surrendering yourselves to the deceitful spirits of this age, but knowing that you're going to belong to brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to call you out in love and say, that's not true what you're believing. That's not in step with God's word, what you're doing. Let me point you back to the truth of the gospel. Let me point you back to the truth of God's word and let me love you by doing that. So why is it so important that every member of every home group be equipped with the knowledge of God's word? It's so that way, no matter where you are, who you're with, whenever it comes to being with people from Providence Community Church, you know that the word of God in your brother or sister's mouth is always right there. 
and ready and willing to come out to encourage you, shape you, build you up, correct you if need be corrected, whatever. The Bible actually says that we would teach, admonish, warn, rebuke, all of these things, that we would do these things to one another. And that's not just the job of the pastor. That's not just the job of the home group leader. That falls on the shoulders of every saint to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is what? The building up of the body of Christ. So truth, when we say devoted to truth, we're talking about being devoted to speaking the truth in love to one another, to having communities that are formed around these abilities to, to speak to one another. And next, when we talk about being communities that are devoted to prayer, we have to understand that we're not talking about 10 minutes in our weekly gatherings or bi-weekly gatherings where we take prayer requests, okay? We're talking about actually developing the spiritual reflex of prayer. Like whenever we have problems or whenever we have struggles or whenever we have issues, do we run to pragmatics or do we want run to prayer? I got laid off, right? When you belong to a community that has a culture of prayer, the reflex isn't, have you, have you, have you drafted your resume here recently? Have you sent it out? Not like, have, you, have you logged online? Have you, have you done all of that? Have you gone to you know, whatever, the, the monster.com? I don't, I don't know what the current things are. Um, have you gone and uploaded your resume? Have you, have you submitted it to a headhunting agency? Have you done all of that? Right. That's whenever you belong to a pragmatic community. That's the kind of response that you get. But you say that you lost your job in a community that is devoted to prayer, then everyone drops everything and says, we need to take this before the Lord right now. And not just right now, but tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, until by God's grace you get a job. Until by God's grace there's breakthrough, and you, re and you receive an answer to that prayer. Now that's a benefit. Now I don't know about you, but I think I would rather belong to the community that's focused on prayer. You don't know why? I can go online and I can read a blog about how to get a new job. Pragmatics are everywhere. Pragmatic solutions infiltrate every aspect of our culture, right? There's a how-to for everything. But oftentimes what Christians need, we don't need another how-to. We need to learn dependence on the Lord. We need to go before God in prayer. We need to submit our cares, our anxieties, right? Whenever someone comes into your home group and you can just tell that they are rot with anxiety and you know, you know because you're someone that's devoted yourself to the truth of God's word. You know the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter six where he says, do not be anxious about the cares of this world. If God so clothed the lilies of the field, if God so cared about the birds of the air, if God so did all those things, how much more will he not care for you, right? This is what you need to hear in those moments that God cares for you and then you need to go before him in prayer. Now, our tendency, because we are so pragmatic in nature, is we might actually rebel against that. We'd be like, no, 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 just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. But we're not called to belong to those kind of communities. We're called to belong to the kind of communities that say, I don't need another thing to do right now. I need to surrender my heart to the Lord. And I need to trust him that he sees me and that he knows me and that he cares about me. Second point, it'll be quick. How prayer and truth are formative alternatives to the false promise of pragmatism and sentimentalism. I've already said this a little bit, but we live in a culture that has elevated the feelings of the individual above any sort of ob objective truth, right? Our culture has elevated sentimentalism and feelings and uh, your own personal sense of, 
of, of self-worth and all of that above anything and everything else, that there almost is no more standard of objective truth. And this has even crept into the church. Now, what does this look like? This looks like I would rather belong to a community that just makes me feel good, right? And we will actually pick and choose home groups or churches or whatever based upon not how biblically faithful they are, but how much they make us feel a certain way. So you can tell that this, this cultural value has even crept its way into the church because oftentimes the first thing to go or the first thing to happen whenever we are offended in a group or a community or a home group or whatever is we do what? We leave. Which tells you right then and there that your highest value is not discerning the truth, knowing the truth, growing in the truth, right? You say, well, they offended me. Well, did you do what the Bible says? Confront them in their offense and then offer forgiveness to them? No, I just left. Why? Because it made me feel offended. But do you see what I'm saying though? That's why we put truth first. Truth goes up here because the truth of God's word will not let you just leave a place because you're offended. The truth of God's word actually calls you to address the offense, seek reconciliation in the offense, and then extend forgiveness for the offense right? How different our churches would look if we were just submitted to the truth. If we just obeyed what the Bible said over and over and over again, just like this is what God's word says. The Bible says that when you're offended, you actually go and you address the, the offender, the one that offended you. And then you're called by God's grace through his word to actually extend forgiveness to your offender. But we know that this has crept into us because one of the first things that happens is whenever the group gets uncomfortable, we don't like how we're feeling anymore, we find ways to either hit the eject button or we just find ways to minimize the group's role in our life and we say, I'm not going to belong to it anymore. At the root of this is the idol of comfort, though. If we're all honest, we'll do anything to avoid feeling uncomfortable, even if it means building on our lives on things that aren't true. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we get offended because all someone did is call out something that was false about your life. That's all they did. Said, this is not in step with the gospel. I'm offended. Okay, I apologize that you're offended. However, it doesn't change the fact that what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. Right? Whenever Paul confronted Peter for Peter's seeming racist antics by neglecting the Gentiles, Paul says to Peter... Peter, your behavior is not in step with the gospel. Does Peter say, Paul, you've offended me. We will never be brothers in Christ again. I'm joining a different home group. No, no, no. He's like, I'm so glad that God sent you to the Gentiles and me to the Jews. That way I never have to hang out with you again because you've offended me. That's not what he says. He repents. Why? Because he recognizes that there was truth in Paul's words. Paul's words were true. Peter was acting like a racist bigot by distancing himself from the Gentiles whenever the Jews were around. He was living a double standard. Paul sees it. Paul loves him so much that he calls him on it. And then Peter repents. He says, you know what? I should not have done that. And then his behavior changes, right? This is what it means to belong to communities that are focused on truth. Sometimes your brothers and sisters are going to say things that are radically uncomfortable to you. And that doesn't make them untrue, though. Where you should be afraid is when your brothers and sisters are either saying things that aren't biblically true or they're just saying things in a hypercritical, judgmental spirit. 
But even then, you, you have to, I think, biblically, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Even whenever people criticize me, and as pastors, you know, they say that pastors preach from a pulpit just so that way you can get just high enough so everyone can get a good shot at you. Just so that way they can get a good aim with the, with the arrows, right? Even whenever I get a critical email, even whenever someone is criticizing me for the things that I've said or not said or done or not done, I always try my best to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. God, what in this email is true? Even though that maybe the tone was awful and the person that wrote it sounds more like a 13-year-old than a 31-year-old, like I, sometimes a 13-year-old can say true things too, even if they're not mature enough to say them well. Does that make sense? This is what you have to belong to, though, this kind of community where it's focused on truth. The other thing that our culture is elevated in, like in, in, in the antithesis of a culture of prayer is our culture has elevated pragmatic solutions to deep problems, and it's made us so averse to reliance upon anything outside of ourselves. We feel like we have to have answers to everything in the right now. And so to defer anything or to depend upon God truly for an answer to something in our lives seems foreign to us. But we really do need to belong to kind of communities that say, listen, it's okay to wait upon the Lord. It's okay to be in a season of waiting. It's okay that even though as we put these things before God and he's not answering your prayer right now in the way that you want to, it's okay for you to have to tarry and wait for the Lord. Think about how long Abraham had to wait for the promise that was delivered to him. Think about how long the prophets had to wait to see the things that were to come, right? Many of them, they didn't see those things in their lifetime. They actually died and they're now looking down at them from heaven. Right? Peter makes this claim, those that were far off actually prophesied of the things that we now experience. But to be in a community that says, you know, we're not always going to have the answer right now, but that's okay. We need to put this before God in prayer. We need to trust God in prayer. We need to put this before the Lord. We need to pray now, and we need to pray often, and we need to pray regularly for what it is that you're struggling through. And we also just need to pray flat out for the spiritual health and condition of our group. Prayer is meant to reorient us to a place of dependence. So belonging to communities, are you guys seeing how these two things tie together? Number one, whenever you're focused on truth, that's going to fight the cultural, uh, the cultural vices of, of, of sentimentalism and, and just being tossed to and fro by your feelings or tossed to and fro by what the culture tells you you should be focused on. And whenever you're anchored in a community that's focused on prayer, you're also going to be fighting against the cultural forces of pragmatism and, and easy fixism and all of that kind of stuff. And you're going to say, no, 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 I'm actually going to be a part of a community that's going to teach me how to be dependent upon the Lord. The third and final point in closing we're going to devote ourselves to these things. Why must the gospel be at the center of prayer, of our pursuit of prayer and truth? It's because if we don't have the gospel of Jesus, if we don't have Christ at the center, then even these biblical virtues, we can turn into moral things. We can turn them into moralistic endeavors. Basically meaning, we can gauge our righteousness based upon how well we do speak the truth in love or how well we do go to the Lord in prayer. But the gospel has to stay at the center because the gospel is a constant reminder that we're going to fail, right? Listen, your home group is gonna fail you. Hello, you wanna know why? Because it's filled with sinful people just like you. 
So why does the gospel have to be at the center? It's because, yes, your home group is going to fail at speaking the truth and love to you. Sometimes it's going to speak the truth, but, it's going to, but people are going to do it in a judgmental way. Sometimes they're not going to speak the truth, and they're going to let you walk in error. Sometimes your home group is going to be built more on sentiment than it is on truth, and that's going to be a struggle that you're going to have to deal with. Sometimes your home group is not going to be built on the reflex of prayer. It's going to be built more so on the reflex of pragmatism and solutions, and have you tried this, and have you done that, and have you stopped this, and have you started that? That's going to happen sometimes. Why? Because it's filled with other sinful people just like you and me. But the gospel is that constant reminder that Jesus had to come and die for our failures. He had to come and die for your failures. He had to come and die for the failures of your home group leader. He had to come and die for the failures of the other people in your home group. He had to come and die for the failures of your pastors, both those past, present, and future. He had to come and die for our failures. And so whenever we fail to live up to the standard of God's word, we know that there's still grace and grace abounding for us. But so whenever we say we're going to be devoted to prayer and we're going to be devoted to truth, but we're not going to be devoted to grace, that's whenever we're in trouble. Because some of us in here have such willpower, if the Bible says to do it, we're like the Pharisees. By God, we're going to figure out a way to do it. We will obey the letter of the law as best we possibly can, but completely neglect the spirit of it. And the spirit of the law is that we would be shaped. The spirit of the law is that we would be formed, that we would grow in our love for God and we would grow in our love for others. But listen, we know that that's not going to happen overnight. We know that that's not going to happen in a moment. We know that it's going to take the Holy Spirit of God through repetition and practice and devotion to these things, shaping us over and over and over again. And we know that on the journey, we're going to need grace. And the grace that we need is the grace that's offered and seen most clearly in the gospel of Jesus. And one of the primary ways that the church, as I say every week, has been regularly reminded of and nourished in the truth of the gospel and the grace of God is in the sacrament of communion. I want to make mention of the fact that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which means that they regularly gathered around a table and broke bread together with the intention of remembering God's grace towards them. And so listen, this is something that we do weekly here at Providence in our Sunday gatherings. I would also encourage you that this is something that you ought to be doing in your home groups. And I'm not saying you all sit around the table and you have the communion meal or you observe kind of like a Passover Seder or something like that. You certainly could. But saying that you acknowledge that whenever you come into fellowship with other Christians, there's something sacred happening there. When you're sitting around a table and you're breaking bread, there should be this constant reminder that no matter what it is on the table, whether it be Hawaiian bread purchased at HEB or gluten-free bread purchased at I don't know where, possibly HEB as well, um, and Welch's grape juice or whatever the, the off-brand alternative, alternative is that we can get in the big jugs. Like no matter what it is that you're eating and drinking, there should be a reminder that Christ's body was broken and given for you. And there should be a reminder that Christ's blood was poured out and shed for you. And so every week at Providence, we observe the sacrament of communion because we know that that's what's on, on the table for us. This is a reminder where we remember what God has done for us and we actually receive his grace. So if you're a Christian in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to come forward and receive communion. And if after you've received communion, you wanna go to the sides of the sanctuary, there'll be some people there that will pray for you, some brothers and sisters in Christ, that if there's anything you need to be prayed for, you can have them pray for you. And if you'd like to receive prayer, please do that.
If you're not a Christian, we simply ask that you'd use this time to reflect on what's been said instead of coming forward, and that's primarily because we know that this is a, a sacrament that's reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus. The Bible actually says that you're proclaiming the death of Jesus when you do this. So for a non-Christian to come and receive communion, you would be proclaiming something you don't yet believe. And so we would encourage you rather to use this time to either sit in your t- seat and reflect on a prayer of belief, or you can uh, always yourselves also go receive prayer at the sanctuary if you believe that God's speaking to your heart this morning. If you guys could please stand to your feet. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recalls a time that Jesus was sitting at a table with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, and it says that he held up the bread before his disciples, and he told them, he said that this is my body that's been given for you, and it says that he broke it, and they had given thanks, and he tells his disciples, as often as you eat this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, and it says in the same way, he also held up the cup, and he reminds them this, the cup represents the new covenant, his blood being shed, and he tells his disciples, as often as you drink from this cup, you do this in remembrance of me. And he tells his disciples, as often as you eat from the bread and you drink from the cup, cup sorry, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Christians, that's what we're doing here this morning. We're both receiving, remembering, and proclaiming what God has done for us in Christ. So let me pray for us and then I'll call us forward. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. God, you have given us all that we need and far more than we deserve and we acknowledge that. And Father, you have given us the truth of your word. You've given us the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And you've given us the, the means of prayer, Lord God, to come before you, to communicate with you, and to commune with you. And so, God, I pray that our communities would be shaped and formed and molded by these two practices. And also by the practice of coming and receiving the bread and the wine as a reminder, God, of your grace. Help us, Lord God, to grow into your likeness and image Help us to grow into love for you and love for others as we observe these things regularly and repetitiously. May you, by your spirit, form us into the kind of people, God, that will glorify you and make much of your son, Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Everyone said amen. You guys can come forward. Please don't forget that there's a gluten-free option here at the center table. Thank you.